Here we are again, looking into the rear pew mirror, reflecting on how things can look different from the back row of the sanctuary. I'm Doug Brooke, and once again, the last row of the sanctuary is briefly moving front and center. Earlier this year, that's 2022 for those of you listening to this in what the moment this is recorded would call Future World, our 10th episode celebrated reaching a minion of episodes by being based on a sermon I'd just given. As of this recording, it's by far the most listened to episode we've had. So, we're doing it again. Once in a while, a synagogue or temple, usually one with good insurance coverage for lightning strikes, will put aside all discretion and good taste and have me do the sermon. Whether you call it a sermon, a devar Torah, a drosh, or a rod for divine lightning, they let me do it. So, once again, this will still be me, though you might experience more of finding bits of nonsense amid real things than the usual finding real things amid my nonsense. Oh, and I'll give the same disclaimer as last time. If just because I use the word sermon, you're expecting this to be preaching, tell you what to believe or telling you what I believe, believe me, it's not. I don't even tell myself what to believe, so I'm sure not going to do it to anyone else. And as for whether sermon equals boring, I didn't fall asleep while I was originally delivering it. I delegated that to my nephews, who happily obliged. My nephews were there because this was Passover and I was back home for the first time in three years because of a global pandemic. You might have seen it in the news. Uh, the pandemic, not my sermon. Spoiler alert, it wasn't that badly received to make it into the news. The sermon was for Shabbat morning, the first day of Passover, and back home is Birmingham, which you need to know for context on a few things I mention. It's not the first day of Passover anymore, but I'll still talk in the present tense as if it were, so you can feel like you're actually there, ready to take a nap as soon as the sermon starts. So, imagine yourself in your Wayback Machine, getting over the food coma and wine hangover from your first Seder, having eagerly just listened to the Torah reading. Hey, I said imagine. And the day's reading was a special one for Passover, from chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. Close your eyes, like you would if you were there when the sermon starts. And here's what I said. Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach, and Zisen Pesach. This is my first Devar Torah since Rosh Hashanah, which is to say since January 1st this year. But it's my first Devar Torah here since my Bar Mitzvah, which was slightly before that. Today's Torah reading recounts the 10th plague in Egypt, the one with the unintended side effect of elevating younger siblings. It's also about the Passover sacrifice, marking the doorposts so the Israelites would be passed over, which helped the current holiday's name make a lot more sense, the origin story of the four questions, the making of the first batches of matzah, some of which all these centuries later we all ate from last night, and other preparations for finally leaving from Egypt after several flight delays. Those are this Torah reading's greatest hits, so, naturally, 
I'm not going to talk about any of them. Instead, we'll focus for a couple of minutes on two small throwaway phrases in today's reading. The main attraction in these is the introduction of an oft-debated, little-known group, the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude. Back in the fifth Aliyah, in verse 37 of chapter 12, for those keeping score, it says the children of Israel traveled from Ramses, uh, the place, not the Pharaoh, to Sukkot, the place, not the holiday. It mentioned there were 600,000 men, mentioned the kids with them, and, true to form, left out the women. But then in verse 38, it also says, also a great mixed multitude, an Erev Rav, went up with them. There's no elaboration. The rest of the verse talks about farm animals. This raises several questions. Who was this great mixed multitude? Why are they mentioned here of all places and never again in the Torah? Or, in fact, in the entire Bible? And wouldn't mixed multitude be a great name for a band? The Torah says nothing about them aside from the few words I just shared. Through the centuries, many rabbis and scholars cut their teeth on Occam's razor, saying the mixed multitude was simply other Egyptians who happened to leave with the Israelites for whatever reason. You can probably imagine numerous possible reasons, and the rabbis certainly imagined even more. Maybe some of the mixed multitude were married to Israelites. And would that make them any different than Moses' wife, Zipporah, who herself was not an Israelite? Etymology suggests the term Erev Rav could originate from an Akkadian word for soldiers. Suffice to say, there have been a lot of theories, opinions, and no doubt many a doctoral thesis on the subject. Regardless of whether they were Egyptians or another non-native group living in Egypt like the Israelites had been, the one and only thing we actually know from the Torah is that they hitched a ride out of town with Moses and company. Tradition through the centuries has been that the Erev Rav were integrated by Moses into the Israelite populace. Tradition also says that they were influential behind problems among the Israelites in the desert that we later hear about. For example, some blame the Erev Rav for the golden calf. Now, we're not going to thumb our noses at centuries of rabbinic tradition, especially because that's kind of hard to do wearing a mask. But let's for a moment put aside existing commentary and conjecture, no matter how divinely inspired, and focus on what's literally said here. They're called the Erev Rav. In Hebrew, Rav means many, or in this context, multitude. It's the same root letters as the root for rabbi. So, this close connection between many and rabbi is obviously the reason why for every two rabbis there's required to be at least three opinions. Does this mean the Erev Rav were a bunch of rabbis? Or is it just an ironic reflection of how there are so many opinions about who the Erev Rav were? Erev here means mixed. It's the same root letters as Arov, the fourth pinky dip in our wine last night as we remembered the wild beasts that plagued Egypt. 
Does this imply that the Erev Rav behaved like animals? That actually ties in a bit with blaming them for things like the golden calf. But Erev also shares the same letters as Erev, which means evening. This is the same word of Vayahi Erev, Vayahi Boker fame. And there was evening, Erev, and there was morning. Is there some connection between evening and this mixed multitude? Did they only come out at night? Does it imply that there was a darkness of evil about them? You can decide what you think about all that etymology, but let's dig deeper into the Erev Rav's brief cameo here during the preparations for Cecil B. DeMille's big special effects for the parting of the Red Sea. They might be here more than meets the eye. Just 11 verses after the Erev Rav are mystifyingly mentioned, another verse does something interesting. Verse 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who resides in your midst. Interesting. Who's the big G talking about here? One law for the native and for the stranger. Who's the native and who's the stranger? Does it even matter who is who since they'll have one law for them all? Now, you might just try to cite the previous verse, which starts out talking about if a proselyte resides with you, a proselyte is basically a convert, and then talks about how these proselytes can be an equal part of the Passover sacrifice if they did their part to support the moil industry. You might see that and think that in the next verse, the stranger is the proselytes. But the Hebrew word here for proselyte is different than the word in the next verse for stranger, so the Torah itself is drawing a distinction. Regardless, verse 48 ends with saying that the proselytes will be like the native of the land. So, as far as verse 49 is concerned, the proselytes fall under the native category, and not the stranger. So, we're still stuck with who's the stranger who resides in your midst? Well, the Erev Rav are the stranger who leaves Egypt in your midst, who went up with them, as it says. Nobody else is mentioned anywhere in relation to the situation, so, unless we pull in someone completely unmentioned, who else could it be but the Erev Rav? And this says that there will be one law for them all, native and stranger, everyone who resides in the same realm. Thus, one law for the Israelites, the proselytes, and the Erev Rav. So, the Erev Rav has long been used as a scapegoat for influencing bad things among the Israelites. Scapegoating them is a group for collectively being the people among us who cause all our problems. But here, the Torah says that they're equal, that everyone's the same as far as the law is concerned. Whether they obey the law more, less, or differently, the law is required to see them as the same. Even if they were a bad influence, and even if they weren't. But if they're such a bad influence, should they be treated equally? Or maybe they're not collectively a bad influence and just a convenient segment of the population to deflect onto. But let's now consider Passover with all this. 
At the Seder, we open the door and recite Halach Ma'anya, which includes, let all who are hungry come and eat. We open the door and invite in anyone, even the Erev Rav, even if they were a bad influence over the centuries. For all that time, and still now, on Passover, we open the door and welcome them. Even if we were burned before by welcoming them into our midst as equals, we still keep doing it. Is that a sign of weakness? Are we being suckers by doing it? Or is it an act of strength, of hope, of optimism? Spoiler alert, it's the latter. Even if sometimes we get betrayed or taken advantage of. Because even if sometimes we're betrayed, a lot of the time we're not. There's often a positive outcome. And what's the alternative? Not opening the door at all. Maybe that's the safer way to ensure nobody does anything bad in our midst. But it also rules out anyone new doing anything good in our midst. So, we get up off the ground, dust off, keep our eyes open, and keep trying. Not so sure about that? Well, we keep opening that door. Now, one might say I'm cherry-picking a couple of convenient phrases to make a point. If so, and I'm not saying I am, it's really no more than what all commentary does. I didn't go in with a message searching for a justification. I was reading the text, and those two phrases just happened to have stood out to me in a way they never had before. As I tell my students, that's why we read the Torah every year over and over and over again. Have you ever seen a movie or read a book multiple times? Of course you have. Did you notice new things each time? Of course you did. Because you know what's coming, which frees up your attention to notice new details. Or you're at a different age or point in life where some of the same things have new relevance to you. That's why we read the Torah every year, to find new things. So tonight, or whenever you're listening to this the next time, when you open the door for Halach Ma'anya, consider how it's an act of welcoming, of strength, of hope, of optimism. And it's welcoming in people for who they are. It doesn't say, let all who are hungry come and eat as long as they agree with us, or as long as they're Mets fans. And by the way, as of this recording, the Mets have the best record in baseball. Thank you very much. It's not even, let all who are needy come and celebrate the Passover with us, but only if they just come around and think about things the way I think is right. After all, Passover is a holiday that's really supposed to be a celebration of freedom. And not just eight days of culinary hardship. We remember the hardship to reinforce how much sweeter freedom is once we get it. So, Passover is a holiday about freedom and welcoming. And maybe that's why the Erev Rav is mentioned here of all places. And why it seems we're told they are equal to the Israelites. 
and why they're never mentioned separately again in the rest of the Torah or the entire Bible. These phrases make it seem like there is no purpose in even distinguishing an us and them. It's all just a collective us. We are all just a collective us. You want more proof? Halach ma'anya isn't in Hebrew. It's in Aramaic, which was the everyday language a couple thousand years ago in the Holy Land rather than Hebrew. It's a mix of Hebrew and influences from other proximitous languages. So Halach ma'anya's target audience isn't really just the Jews. It's for everyone who resides among us. In the words of James T. Kirk, They must apply to everyone or they mean nothing. Do you understand? I do not fully understand one named Kirk. But the holy words will be obeyed. I swear it. So, hold the door open tonight just a little longer while pondering all this. Pondering what it means with those additional layers. Pondering more about the common ground we all have. Because somewhere, we do all have common ground. Want proof? If you listen hard with the door open tonight, remember I was saying this on April 16th, the first day of Passover, 2022, you just might hear some of the strangers among us cheering all the way from Protective Stadium because some fool thought it was a good idea to schedule the first Birmingham Stallions game in the new USFL during Second Seder. And having a problem with that is a sentiment we can all get behind. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach, and may the matzah be the only thing making your Passover the crummiest holiday of the year. And that's what I said. Lightning didn't strike. Nobody stormed out. I was approached after services by several of the two readers of my column. One of them said that hearing this was like listening to my column, which you get to do with every episode of this podcast including bonus content that doesn't fit into a 700-word space limit. I'll mention that, thinking about it later, the verse about the proselytes, the converts, could actually further support this other verse referring to the Erev It could further support that that's what it's doing. Tradition says Moses integrated the Erev into the Israelites. Essentially, that means they'd be converts. That verse I mentioned said the proselytes could take part in the Paschal Lamb, thus being another thing that makes them the same. This doesn't really refute anything I said before. If anything, it reaffirms it a bit more, or at least approaches it from a different angle. And it also reaffirms why we read the Torah over and over every year. Because when we look at something again, we find new things in it for us and for our lives. Well, that's it. And I hope the Stallions' terrific comeback victory with the backup quarterback on second Seder night is a harbinger and not an aberration. But I also hope that you stuck around to hear how much I thank you for there being no limit to you listening to this podcast. Rear Pew Mirror is my longtime humor column, 
Though this episode was actually based on the sermon I gave on the first day of Passover, April 16th, 2022, in my hometown. Please follow Rear Pew Mirror on your podcast platform of choice and tell your friends about it. Give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that takes reviews and leave a comment as long as it's indeed praiseworthy. Share this episode with your friends, family, Seder guests, and also with people you get along with. Share it with total strangers, partial strangers, and anyone who shares our love of Joe Jackson's 2018 should-have-been-a-hit song, Strange Land. You can read past columns at rearpewmirror.com and follow Rear Pew Mirror on Facebook and leave comments there telling us what you'd like to hear about here. Also, check out Rear Pew Mirror's home publication, Southern Jewish Life Magazine at sjlmag.com for more legitimate news and facts than you'll ever hear from me here. I'll talk to you again next time. Be good out there. <laughs>